Booty, the Fight Seriously podcast. Colorectal cancer patients are often faced with circumstances related to their disease that aren't openly discussed. In Tabuti, the Fight CRC podcast, we delve into those topics that are sometimes considered controversial, trending, or just plain interesting. Listen in as we talk to experts, patients, and caregivers who provide accurate, real, and practical information for cancer survivors. It's time for us to bring these issues to light. Listen in from anywhere, from your car to the chemo chair. To suggest a podcast topic, email answers at fightcrc.org. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Fight CRC Tabuti podcast. My name is Sharon, and I'm part of the Fight CRC team. And today I'm joined by Liz Brockland, who is a community health nurse at Northside Housing and Supportive Services. Hi, Liz. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, I thought we could just kind of kick off and have you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and maybe maybe starting with Northside Housing and, and what the organization is and, and the work that it does. Sure. Um, yeah, basically Northside Housing and Supportive Services is an organization in Chicago and we serve individuals who are currently and formerly homeless. So we have a shelter on the north side of Chicago that serves um, 72 men. And um, that's kind of an emergency housing shelter. So individuals stay there from you know one night to several months, kind of depending on their needs. Um, and then we also have a pretty robust permanent supportive housing program. So basically individuals who have a history of chronic homelessness um, get placed into our program and, um, you know, they live sprinkled throughout the city and receive um, housing and case management services through our organization. So um, we have a team of case managers and social workers who work really closely with those individuals to help them stay housed and work on, you know, other needs. So, you know, obtaining income, obtaining disability, getting connected with different social services and working on their own personal goals. So I work pretty closely with the individuals in that program, um, you know, helping to support them on their health goals. Awesome. Wow. So it sounds like a lot of you guys do a lot of really great work and a lot of outreach. Um, obviously, we're on the podcast um, has a colorectal cancer focus. So I know you and I have chatted a little bit about the work that you do around uh, colorectal cancer screening and help, you know, helping to get some of these folks up to date on their on their screening. So what does that look like? And have you been successful? What kind of challenges do you have when it comes to talking about screening with the people that you serve? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, you know, essentially our healthcare system right now functions at medical appointments and in hospitals. But once people go home from those appointments, there's a lot of gaps. And my job is to try and kind of fill in those gaps so that what happens at medical appointments and what happens in hospitals actually carries through and there's follow-up. So um, for the individuals we serve, those gaps are sometimes greater because they have, you know, oftentimes more chronic health conditions. Um, a lot of the individuals I work with, have, you know, experience mental illness. Um, you know, they experience substance use. Um, 
and you know many of them have learning barriers or literacy barriers. So when a doctor orders a colonoscopy, whether it's routine or you know maybe if it needs to happen more urgently, there's so many steps that need to happen to make that appointment occur that these referrals just kind of get lost in the mess. Um, and the individuals I work with oftentimes have a lot of other health conditions that they're focused on. So, you know, for someone experiencing severe chronic pain, it's really hard to kind of say, let's focus on the preventative care. Let's focus on the colonoscopies or dental or vision when there's a lot of other high needs that really need to be addressed. So um, it's required a lot of creative thinking, but we've really tried to, you know, in the past year, focus on how important this is and focus on those preventative screenings. So, you know, we're asking the individuals that I work with, you know, every six months or so, if they've had preventative screenings, if they need a referral from their doctor, if they feel Mm -hmm. like they need more help completing that referral once they've gotten it. Um, And I think we're seeing good outcomes, but it, it takes a lot of time. I mean, we talk a lot about screening and prevention and the barriers that people face, um, you know, even even people that have consistent housing and that have consistent uh, jobs, um, there's already barriers. So for someone that maybe is in flux with housing or doesn't have a job, I, I, can, I can't even imagine the types of barriers um, that come along with screening. So you, you referred to um, colonoscopy. Do you ever see fit tests being used as well, or do those also include barriers to uh, completing the screening? Yes, I think we're, you know, I think we're seeing more and more providers ordering fit tests, although sometimes even I've noticed that different healthcare systems are kind of struggling with, you know, once they order it, where it comes from, and and sometimes the doctors themselves aren't kind of aware of, you know, I placed I placed that order but what happens next? Um, so we're trying to kind of pick up those gaps that we're noticing in different healthcare systems to to help the providers understand that, you know, this referral is kind of hanging, hanging out in the abyss. We need to make sure that they know where to pick this up or if the fit test is delivered to them and that that participant then understands where they deliver it to and, and those kind of details. Um, so I think when it's clinically relevant, we're seeing it happen more and more, and it's it's definitely a lot easier for participants. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think for for some of our participants who you know, I'm working with someone right now, um, and he's supposed to have GI surgery, and prior to the surgery, he needs to complete a colonoscopy. So there's mm-hmm. lots of instances too where you know the fit test isn't isn't the test that needs to be ordered for that individual. Right. So. Um, you know, I think it's a mixed answer. Right, right, yeah, absolutely. And so in terms of colonoscopy, I mean, prep is one of the most notorious parts of the procedure. Um, what kinds of what kind of advice do you give people um, as they're preparing to do the prep if they are having a hard time, you know, following through? How do you talk to them about the fact that this is so important and how to do it? Right, yeah, I think, you know, I think in-person education really helps. So the provider is doing that at the appointment, but then once they pick up, you know, once they pick up the prep from the pharmacy and they have this list of long detailed directions about what to do, um, if if we don't have either a case manager or myself there in person in their home, kind of walking them through it and making sure that they can 
teach us back and say, you know, I, I know I need to start drinking this then. And these are the only types of, um, you know, foods or liquids that I can have that day. Um, then I, you know, I don't think that we can ever evaluate if that education has actually been effective if someone else can't demonstrate back to us how they're supposed to do it. Um, you know, more recently, we've gotten creative with a little bit of funding we have for, um, you know, clients' nutrition with our food pantry. So I'll make sure to go through the pantry and see if we have jello or we have broth or juice so that we can kind of create little, um, you know, almost like a little yeah. setup for someone who's doing oh, their prep right. that day and say, mm -hmm. these are the only things that you can eat, or let's go to the grocery store together and pick out items for you and, you know, pick out baby wipes and do whatever we can to kind of package this so that that day mm -hmm. when you're doing this on your own, we've, we've set you up as best we can. Oh, that's awesome. Even in terms of looking at what you can and cannot do and what you can and cannot eat, it can be a little bit confusing. So having like that package ready for you on that day, I, I imagine is really helpful. Yeah. And, you know, even then, I think the lessons that I'm learning are that each individual's needs are so different from the next mm -hmm. that for some people, I've I've done the package and I've gotten family members involved and I've done education over the phone for days in advance and seen them the day before and walked through it with them. Um, and, you know, I, the next morning I picked up someone a couple of weeks ago to take him to his colonoscopy and I asked him how it went the night before and he was like, oh, it was great. It was wonderful. And I said, oh, that, that doesn't sound like that doesn't sound like a good answer because most people don't tell me that. And he said, yeah, I just had a couple of sips of the of the of the prep. And then I that that was all. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, I, there was so much that we did, but he, he had a lot of memory issues and, mm -hmm. um, you know, experiences, mental illness and all of that sort of affects his ability to receive this information. So in that instance, it wasn't enough. And now we're kind of going back to the drawing board and seeing if we can mm -hmm. escalate our intervention, essentially, to get him his colonoscopy. Wow. I'm pulling up the statistic, and it's looking like, according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, there could be around 554,000 homeless people on any given night in the United States, which is a large number. And I know that a lot of the people that you're working with are are in transition, finding housing, kind of previously homeless. But I mean, this is a this is a, a big number of people. And while not all of those people are, you know, adults of screening age, I mean, a lot of them probably are. So how do you see cancer screening kind of fitting in here in in the work that you do? I mean are there other organizations similar to yours that are doing similar work? Is there some kind of a national outreach to help people experiencing homelessness access preventive services? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think from the standpoint of individuals who are currently experiencing homelessness, who are in the shelter system or living outside um, or doubled up with different family members, oftentimes cancer screenings are just kind of the last thing on people's list of what needs to happen, you know, housing and jobs and um, mm -hmm. really, really pertinent pressing medical matters are really on the surface. So right. I think that's, that's not even something I've begun to wrap my head around of, of mm -hmm. how we focus on, on that population. Um, you know, I know there are some medical respite homes for individuals who are currently homeless and we have some in Chicago, 
Um, you know, our nursing homes sometimes are places that kind of fill in those gaps. So I think kind of doing education at those places or expanding those types of services is what we need to look at to get people um, to be able to focus on preventative health. But but I think really the time that people can finally pay attention to preventative health is once they are housed. And, you know, Northside Housing is a, is a housing first model, essentially saying like, mm-hmm. we need to get people housed. We can't ask them to focus on, you know, these important health matters until they have a roof over their head and they have that consistency. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we focus on it once we're in the permanent supportive housing state with a lot of individuals. Right. And even then it's a bunch of barriers. And, you know, I think for me, it's a lot of, um, there's a room for a lot of education. A lot of providers don't understand what permanent supportive housing is. You know, I think they think mm-hmm. that Sometimes they think that means someone lives in a nursing home and has kind of 24-hour access to, you know, different support and medical providers. And really, individuals are living independently in the community um, with programs like ours as a support system, but, you know, they don't necessarily have um, someone kind of watching over them all the time. They're they're not that high need. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think helping them understand that if you're, you know, asking someone to do a colonoscopy and this is their history and this is where they live now, um, that that person's going to require a lot of extra support um, mm-hmm. and we have to figure out how to start catering our healthcare system to, to individuals who are a higher need. Yeah. And in talking to a number of, of social workers recently, I mean, I've heard a lot about the housing first before accessing a lot of services as, as a trend that has been proven recently to be really quite uh, beneficial. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, you know, get someone in a more stable housing living situation before addressing some of the health healthcare needs. You know, everyone deserves access to preventive services and colorectal cancer is one of the most preventable cancers because of the colonoscopy and because of the screening. So hearing about the work that you do at Northside Housing is, is really inspiring. And I, I, I truly hope that others are seeing this kind of work done in their communities as well. Do you have any information about what's going on more more broadly in the country in terms of addressing homelessness um, and also in terms of healthcare? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think I can speak a lot to what's happening in Chicago, which is, you know, us realizing that we need more affordable housing and we need more permanent supportive housing services for individuals. You know, oftentimes if someone's been chronically homeless, the transition from being homeless to to being housed does require a lot of, um, you know, detailed case management and support from an agency that has a lot of wraparound services so that people don't, you know, become homeless again. Um, And I think, you know, I hope, I guess, that nationwide that's happening as well. But, you know, a lot of cities are also struggling with, you know, finding affordable housing for individuals. And, and you know, we in Chicago are, are definitely facing that. So I think that, you know, there's some legislation in the works to try to improve the amount of um, affordable housing we have. Um, and, you know, dispersing that throughout lots of different communities in the city, because oftentimes certain neighborhoods are kind of bearing the brunt of, of having a lot of affordable housing and other ones aren't, you know, as welcoming to that. So, um, I think the more we sort of increase the the understanding of the importance of the issue and and all the things that kind of trickle down. So you know, you and I are talking about 
colonoscopies and colon cancer screening and mm-hmm. essentially how that relates to housing. So I think <laughs> we need, you know, people to get, you know, to start thinking about all the factors that affect an, a person's ability to, to take care of their health. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times we're afraid to interact with individuals who are experiencing homelessness or, you know, maybe we have stereotypes in our mind about what led to someone's homelessness. And I think oftentimes that comes with a lot of judgment that, you know, whatever they did to get themselves here, that's that's their fault. That's not my problem. Um, but really, in conversations with the people that I work with, there's there's so many different paths that have kind of led a person to um, struggle with housing stability. And, and that if anything, I've learned that if I don't ask to listen to their stories or hear their stories, that I would have never known kind of the situations that, that led to that experience. You know, I've worked with someone who, you know, experienced a horrible physical health injury and wasn't able to work and became very depressed. And, um, you know, he was in horrible chronic pain and, you know, became homeless after that. And I think so many people would never consider that, um, you know, one injury can really turn a person's life around. Um, you know, I think we want to distance ourselves from from it and think that that can never happen to me. But really, I think people who are experiencing homelessness are just, you know, they're, they're regular people that were in a, you know, experience some really hard situations. I think that's a really interesting point um, and good to remember. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, the healthcare needs are, are escalated when a person is, is experiencing homelessness because, you know, they're living outside. A lot of people are experiencing um, food instability and, um, you know, temperature extremes. And, you know, a lot of them experience violence when they're living on the streets. So um, their their health needs are, are even more extreme. And after people are housed, um, you know, we continue to see a lot of those chronic health conditions that they mm-hmm. kind of developed because of having to be homeless. So, um, you know, not only are their health needs sometimes ignored, but I think their health needs then aren't, you know, adjusted for after that experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that makes sense then, right? Like the housing get the housing first, like the, like your org north side housing is, is focused on. And then once housing is established, then going into um, some of the, the healthcare services would follow. Right, exactly. Okay. So how do you think things um, could improve or, or where do you see things heading in the future? Yeah, I, you know, I think in my, if I had a dream, if I could magically wave a wand and uh-huh. uh, fix the healthcare system in some various ways, I think some of the uh, frequency of appointments that are required to get people in the door for a colonoscopy definitely present a barrier to a lot of the people I work with. So, you know, you go to your primary care doctor to get a referral. They refer you to the GI who sees you for one visit in person before they will schedule the colonoscopy and order the prep. Um, and to me, sometimes that just doesn't seem like it should have to be a couple of appointments before um, you're even able to to schedule a colonoscopy. Uh-huh. But, I, you know, I think that's kind of the way that the billing system is working and, and trying to get people in in person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we need to start working closely with insurance companies when there are individuals who are struggling to get colonoscopies completed because 
we need to think more innovatively about how we're supporting them. So we have, you know, I have successfully once gotten insurance to cover an individual to be admitted to the hospital the day before his colonoscopy was scheduled so that someone could essentially monitor and and help him with the prep. Um, And he was someone who had had a stroke several months before and was having a really hard time understanding uh, verbal instructions. Um, He was having a hard time with memory. And we had lots of appointments with his GI doctor before that to say, you know, this is someone who really isn't going to be able to complete this. And, you know, he's reporting that he has blood in his stool and we really need to figure out what's going on. So um, the GI doctor was shocked that insurance approved it. But I think once we start sort of communicating to insurance companies that, you know, if if this is missed, um, this is a huge risk for this person's health. This is also something that would be way more expensive for insurance to deal with down the line. So mm-hmm. let's let's provide those more detailed interventions when people need it. And you know, he was able to successfully complete it. So well, you know, I think we're trying to replicate that a little bit more when we have other individuals like the person I mentioned earlier. Um, who, you know, forgot that he was supposed to drink the whole formula after we had talked to him about it for several hours. So um, the more and more I think we can kind of work as a team with providers and insurance companies and kind of more grassroots approaches like our organization to to support people, the better outcomes we're going to see. Well, thank you so much, Liz. Uh, this has been a really interesting topic um, for us to cover. And um, I really appreciate your time and really admire all the all the work that you do in your community. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I'm so happy to talk about this and it's exciting to hear the work that you guys are doing. And I couldn't resist being on a podcast with such a fun name. <laughs> Tabuti. Um, and for everyone listening, if you're interested to learn more about Northside Housing, um, you can visit their website at northsidehousing.org. Um, and thanks so much, Liz. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in. Please remember that this information is for educational purposes only and all medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. For more resources, visit us on the web at fightcolorectalcancer.org.